Have you ever found yourself at the wrong place at the wrong time? Several years ago, Christy and I led a mission trip with a bunch of teenagers from our church to Kenya. And on this mission trip, it was an incredible opportunity in which we were preaching the gospel in schools. We were feeding the hungry. We were doing some light construction. It was a great mission trip that we got to experience together. On our return flight itinerary, it had us having a 24-hour layover in Amsterdam. Our plan was when we arrived in the city, we would go to the hotel, drop off our bags and get something to eat, go to sleep, and then the next day we'd go check out the city in the morning and then head to the airport for our evening flights. Well, we put our bags down, we get a meal, get a good night's rest, and then that next morning we hop on a train and went into Amsterdam. And as I'm leading this group of teenagers and a few adults with my wife, I said, guys, let's just go investigate the city. And after we take a few blocks, I realize all of a sudden we are in the wrong part of the city. And I panic and I say, guys, we got to get out of here. And so I'm trying to shield their eyes as we are trying to get out of an area that is not Christian, to say the least. Finally, we see a souvenir shop. And I thought, okay, let's head in there and we'll check out some things. And so we go in there and everyone's kind of perusing and browsing. And then I realized, to my horror, there's drug paraphernalia all over the place. And I thought to myself, I am going to get fired. And so I'm like, guys, we, we can't be in here. We, we need to get out of there. And so they're finishing up their purchases. And you better believe I was checking every bag. And so the group kind of congregates on the sidewalk outside of the souvenir shop. I'm trying to figure out where are we going to go next and what's going to happen. And all of a sudden, I get shoved from behind. And I turn around, and there is a fight breaking out right outside of the bar next to the souvenir shop. It's 10 a.m. And so now I find myself in the middle of a bar fight. And so I start pushing these grown men in one direction. I'm pushing my students in the opposite direction, and I'm panicking. And I learned that that day that the Netherlands was playing a World Cup soccer game later in the day, and the people thought they would get start celebrating early. And so I find myself in this predicament, and I looked at my students and I said, we're going to the airport. <laughs> And everybody said, sounds good to us. I found myself in a large city with thousands of people and chaos happening all around me. I was in the middle of what felt like pandemonium. Well, 2,000 years ago, a man walks into Jerusalem, a city with thousands of people. And the city is in chaos. The city is in pandemonium. But for this man, God used him to do something that the world would never forget. Let me show you. Grab your Bible and turn with me to Mark chapter 15. Mark chapter 15. As a faith family, we've been walking through the gospel of Mark together, seeing Jesus on the move. This is a fast-paced gospel. It's hard-hitting where Mark lays out for us the life and ministry of Jesus. 
Throughout this series, we've seen Jesus call his disciples. He's healed the sick, multiplied food. He's raised the dead. He's walked on water. He's calmed storms. He has taught life-altering truths about the kingdom. Now we're at the end of Jesus' life where he is headed to the cross. His purpose for coming to earth has reached its climax. You see, the cross is why Jesus left heaven. The cross is why Jesus was born in Bethlehem. The cross was why he came to earth. For it would be through the cross that Jesus would reconcile man back into a right relationship with himself. We see in Mark 15 that Jesus has been betrayed, denied, abandoned, tried, substituted for a murderer, been flogged, beaten, and mocked by the Roman soldiers. Now, as we read the text, keep in mind that Romans loved ceremonies. They loved pageantry. They loved theatrics. Even in their executions, they would parade the criminal through the streets with a placard announcing their crime. And they would nail these criminals who were not Romans to a cross on very strategic, well-traveled roads. They were communicating that if you rise up against Rome, this is what is going to happen to you. This torment was designed to strike fear into the the hearts of those who would seek to push back against them. And this is where we're picking up here. In Mark 15, beginning with verse 21, the scripture says, They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. He was Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. They brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull. They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. What we see in the text is Mark's summation of what took place as Jesus journeyed from the governor's palace all the way to Mount Calvary. Though he does not give the amount of detail that the other gospel writers do, we are still given scenes, these snapshots of what took place as Jesus is on his route to die. I want you to notice what is happening in the text this morning and what it means for us. I want you to see first the person who helped carry Jesus' cross. The person who helped carry Jesus' cross. Verse 21 says, They forced a man coming in from the country who was passing by to carry Jesus' cross. Simon was out in the countryside of Judea. For what purpose? We we don't know. Um, We just know that he just happened to be passing by. This event caught him completely off guard. This was not something he planned on doing. Carrying Jesus' cross was not on his to-do list for the day. This is not something that he had planned, but make no mistake, it is something that God had planned. You see, there are no random chances with the Almighty. There are no accidents with God. The Lord providentially rules and reigns over every event, over every minute detail in our lives. Charles Spurgeon said it like this, I believe that every particle of dust that dances in the sunbeam does not move an atom more or less than God wishes. 
Though Simon did not plan to run into Jesus on Good Friday, Jesus planned to run into Simon. You see, the Lord loves to interrupt our plans for his greater purposes. You and I can go about our lives living for sin, living for self, going our own way, but then Jesus comes and meets us. And he transforms our lives. Even when we were not seeking him, he came seeking for us. Proverbs 19.21 says, Many are the plans in a man's heart, but it's the Lord's purpose that prevails. We see this truth taking place in the life of Saul of Tarsus. Here is a man who is persecuting Christians. He is seeking to eliminate them, these rogue believers who are turning the world upside down. And as he's on the road to Damascus, Jesus confronts him, blinds him, calls him to himself, and Saul becomes the Apostle Paul, where God uses him to turn the world upside down. He joins the, the way of the gospel. This is what God does. God loves to interrupt our plans, to interrupt our lives for something bigger than we can ever imagine. And this is how God meets with us. That when you came to know Christ, you were going about your own way. You had plans. You had purposes for your life. You had a certain way, a trajectory that you planned on going. But then you meet Jesus. And he changes everything about you. He changes your trajectory. He changes your plans and purposes. And now all of a sudden, he takes the wheel of your life. He takes lordship over everything about you. He interrupts. This is what he's doing with Simon here. He meets him right where he is, calls him to himself, and he's bringing Simon into the story. He's transforming his life with the gospel. This is what happened with us. When we were going our way, someone told us the gospel. They told us the good news of Jesus and what he came to do for us through this death and resurrection. Someone introduced us to Jesus and we met him and he changed us. He changes everything about us. We become new creations in Christ. Old things pass away. Behold, all things become brand new. When you meet Jesus, he changes your life. He will interrupt you right where you are and pull you into his family, call you unto himself, and you walk with him up the Calvary road. Well, the question I was wrestling with this week is why was Simon forced by the soldiers to carry Jesus' cross? Why did the soldiers recruit a caddy to carry Jesus' cross? Maybe it was compassion. The Roman soldiers saw how much Jesus had already suffered. They saw that he had been scourged. His body was beaten. He was covered in blood and in their spit. He may have been too weak to carry his own cross. And out of the overflow of kindness, they enlisted Simon to finish the task. Or maybe it was impatience. Jesus was walking too slow. He was taking too long. He was kept falling down. He didn't have the physical strength to get all the way up to Calvary. They were tired of waiting on him. They were ready to get this execution over with. And so they, verse 21, forced Simon to get this thing going faster. They're rushing him up Calvary's hill. But whatever their motivation was, let's not miss the significance of what's happening here. I want you to see, I put this in your notes. This event was historically verifiable. 
It's historically verifiable. In verse 21, Mark is giving the names of people that could authenticate. They could substantiate. They could verify. They could confirm and validate this event that it actually happened. Mark is telling us who Simon's kids are. He tells us, look at verse 21. Simon of Cyrene, the father of Alexander and Rufus. Mark is saying, hey, this really happened. And if you have any questions, you can go ask Alexander. You can go ask Rufus. Their dad was the one who carried the cross with Jesus. Now, the first century audience of Mark's gospel, they knew Alexander and Rufus. And as we see in the book of Acts, John Mark, author of this gospel, traveled with Simon Peter. Simon Peter was directly connected to the church at Rome. And remember, Mark's audience is primarily Roman. In fact, Rufus is referenced in Paul's letter to the Roman church. The apostle Paul writes in Romans 16, 13, Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother and mine. And so here we see this relationship where Jesus transforms Simon's life. Simon's carrying the cross with Christ, for Christ. And then his family comes to know Jesus. I, this week, uh, I was at the bowling alley with my son, and he had a bunch of friends there. And uh, another pastor friend of mine was there. And we started talking about, hey, what are you preaching through? Hey, what are you preaching through? Preachers, we're really boring, so don't hang out with us very much. But we like, love to talk shop. And, and I was talking with this friend of mine, and I said, hey, man, I'm going through Mark 15, and I'm just blown away by this Simon of Cyrene. I'm explaining the text. And this was so good. He says, you know what's interesting? You see multi-generational faithfulness right there in the text. And I was like, oh, man, how did I miss that? That's exactly right. You have Rufus and Alexander, whose dad is carrying the cross with Jesus. And we see later in Romans 16, where there they are, Rufus and his mom, Simon's wife, in the church at Rome. And there's such a relationship that the apostle Paul says, hey, tell Rufus I said hi, I love him. And tell his mom I said hi, because she's kind of like my mom too. What you see here in this moment is where multi-generational faithfulness takes place. Simon meets Jesus. And he is carrying Jesus' cross. And this moment is so significant that his wife and children come to know the Lord. Isn't this amazing, dads? That there is an intentionality, there is a responsibility, and ultimately an accountability that we have for multi-generational faithfulness of teaching and investing the gospel story to our children. Telling our children and our grandchildren the praiseworthy deeds of our God, Psalm 78. We are intent, intentionally teaching with our lives and with our words who Christ is and what he came to do. This moment is so significant that we see where Simon is literally feeling the splinters of the cross. And the moment is so significant that he goes and tells his wife and children what happened. This is what we do as husbands and fathers and grandfathers. We teach, we invest, and we get our families connected with the local church. We see that in Romans 16. There's relationship, there's trust. 
But it's amazing to me here that we see here in verse 21, he is laying out for us. This really happens, excuse me, verse 20. He is laying out for us. You can verify this story. Here are two guys, you can go ask them. They can corroborate the story and you can ask them for an accounting of what happened on Good Friday. Once again, you can trust the scriptures. I also want you to see in this text that this event was also picturing a bigger reality. It was picturing a bigger reality. Though Simon was caught unaware in an event that he had nothing to do with, he was wrong place, wrong time, but we see in the providence of God, it was the right place and right time. He's right in the thick of it now. And so he picks up the cross and follows Jesus. This event is picturing what's true for all believers. This is what you and I are called to do. In Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, pick up his cross, and follow me. Simon is modeling, he is picturing discipleship. He is showing you and showing me this is what it ultimately looks like to be a follower of Jesus. We deny our flesh, we deny our desires, and we pick up our cross, we so identify with Christ, and we follow him. It's a call to self-denial and cross-bearing. What Simon is doing physically is something that we are all called to do spiritually. If you're a follower of Christ, the call of Jesus is to lay down your desires, to lay down your pride, to lay down your selfishness, to repent of your sin daily, and to walk the Calvary road. The call to follow Jesus is one to deny, to die, and to follow. And as we follow Christ, we are submitting to his lordship. We're saying, Lord, I'm not going to go my way. I'm going to go your way. I'm going to submit my life completely to your authority. I follow Jesus, not the other way around. You see, the call to be a disciple of Christ is one in which you forfeit your desires and your plans. You lay it all down and say, my life is now hidden with Christ. This is what Paul says in Galatians 2.20. He says, For I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live. But the life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. The call to follow Christ is saying, I'm not going to go my way now. Jesus, you are Lord and master and sovereign over all of my life. And I submit to you and I follow you. And you now have the final say-so over all of my life. Which means it governs your decisions. It governs how you spend your money. It governs how you, who you marry. It governs how you parent. It governs how you submit to your boss at work. It governs how you are a student and an athlete. Submitting to the lordship of Christ saying, Lord, you have sovereignty over every square inch of my life. My life is no longer about me. My life is about Christ. And now, Lord, I'm seeking to deny myself, pick up my cross, and follow you. This is what Simon is modeling here. We see a picture of a man who's taking up the cross of Christ and following him up the Calvary road, and so too must we. 
This is the path that we must walk because we are headed towards, we are marching towards the new Jerusalem. We are people who are seeking to repent of our sin, to rid ourselves of sin that so easily entangles. We're turning away from the Genesis 3 curse and we're seeking to follow Christ because we're marching victoriously to Zion. We're going after our king who came to rescue his people. I want you to see thirdly right here in the text that this event was also displaying the international scope of the gospel. We see something in play here with Simon. Did you catch it? It's right there next to his name. Where is he from? Say it again louder. Cyrene, Cyrene, coastal city in North Africa, modern day Libya. Whether Simon is a Jew who's in town for Passover, or he's a Jerusalem resident who's been working out in the field and this is where he lives now, or he's just a traveler passing through, we don't know. But what we do know is that Scripture connects him to Africa. I learned something else this week as I was studying this text. I was blown away by this. So Simon is a Hebrew name. Rufus is a Latin name. Alexander is a Greek name. So what we see happening here is in this one family, we have a Greek representation, a Roman representation, a Jewish representation coming from Africa. There is an international scope of the gospel. Jesus here has a man from Africa, probably had black skin, helping carry the cross up Calvary's road. We see the heart of God where he is calling people from the nations to pick up their cross and to follow him. The universality of the gospel is that it reaches out all over the world. That the nations are close to the heart of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That whoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. You see, the nations are close to the heart of God. In which people from every tribe and tongue and people and skin color are close to the heart of God. In which he calls all men everywhere to repent of sin and to trust in his son. Psalm 96.3 says, declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. It is the heartbeat of God to see people from all the four corners of the earth come to know and treasure and follow his son. And here is Jesus inviting a man from North Africa to participate with him on the Calvary Road. He's inviting him to carry the cross, to go up to the top. And here is Jesus having this international vision, this call of people, of every skin pigmentation, following him. If God loves the nation, so should we. If God loves people of every skin color, so should we. If God is the one who made all people and loves all people, so should we. And here is Jesus showing us what it means to love the nations. Inviting a man from North Africa 
and we weren't there, but boy, I can't wait to get to heaven, which I can pepper Simon with all these questions. Did you lock eyes? Did you lock arms? What were you thinking? What were you feeling? What was that moment like? What did you do when you walked away? Did you hear him scream? Did you see his mom and his sisters? What was happening here in this moment? What we see here is the heartbeat of Jesus. For in a matter of weeks, Jesus would not only rise from the dead on the third day, but he would gather his disciples up on a mountain. And he would give them this command. Go and make disciples of all nations. Baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And I will be with you even to the end of the age. It is the heartbeat of Jesus to see all people groups come to know and treasure and follow Christ. Y'all, it means there's urgency. We've got to get this gospel to the ends of the earth. You and I must leverage what we have while we still have life and breath and say, Lord, would you use this for the advancement of your name so that all peoples might know and treasure you. We as a church very intentionally and strategically use our financial resources to invest in ministries that are taking the gospel to the ends of the earth so that when you and I give to Westwood, we are indeed reaching the nations with our giving. We are a people who I can't wait for COVID to go away so we can be sending teams all over the world of preaching the gospel and letting people know about a Savior who loves them and died for them. But we're a people who also pray in which we are praying for the nations. We are praying for unreached people groups, for people who, who don't know Christ to come to know and love and follow him. I heard this question asked not long ago, and it really convicted me, and the question was this. If God answered all of your prayers, how many people would be saved? And so something we've done as a family is that at dinner time we read a chapter of Scripture, and we pray for one country every night. We've got this book, Operation World, and we're just walking through it, praying for the nations. Question, who are you praying for? If God answered all of your prayers to a yes and amen, to everything you asked of him, who would be saved? May we be a people who are about the heart of God, and his heart is for the nations. It's for all people to know and love and follow him. Here is a man from North Africa carrying Jesus' cross up a mountain. But it's not just any mountain. I want you to see the second thing here in the text that Mark tells us is the place of Jesus' death on the cross. Jesus was led out of the city, the end of verse 20, to a place called, verse 22, Golgotha. The word Golgotha, it's Hebrew. It means the place of the skull. Now there is debate today as to where exactly Golgotha is located in Jerusalem. The traditional site is the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. It's a large church building on this site that some believe is the location of Golgotha. Now there is a second site called the Garden Tomb. Outside of the city, though there are arguments for both, the Garden Tomb site gives a compelling case as the correct location of Jesus' death and resurrection. 
when Christy and I were in Israel back in 2019, uh, we took all kinds of pictures. But there are two this morning that I want to show you. The first is a picture that I took of another picture that was hanging up on a wall that was taken back in the uh, early 20th century. You can see within the blue square the face of a skull. This is the garden tomb area. To your left of this picture is a garden and an empty tomb. The next picture I'll show you is the one that I took, coming from a different angle, same mountain. You can kind of see the makeup of the skull in the face of the rock. The nose has fallen off for several decades ago. They had a freeze and the rock fell. But I believe that this is the location where Jesus died. It's Golgotha. The place where I'm standing from is a garden where off to the left there is a beautiful garden where there is also an empty tomb. You'll see to the right, underneath it is just a a bus stop. People hustling and bustling, going about their day, not thinking a thing about Christ or the, the cross. But this is probably where it took place. Now what we see throughout the New Testament is they don't give us an exact location because the purpose is not significantly or primarily about where, it's about who. It's about what happened. But what we see is that this is the heart of God where he sends forth his son who goes to the cross and he dies on Golgotha. What's interesting about the garden tomb location is it's outside of the city walls. Well, what's the big deal about that? Well, do you remember Hebrews 13, verse 12? The writer of Hebrews says, Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp, bearing his disgrace. Just as the bodies of sacrificial animals whose blood provided temporary atonement for sin were burned outside the camp, so Jesus was taken outside the camp. He was taken outside the city to suffer and to provide through his shed blood a permanent and forever atonement for sin. As Jesus was taken to Golgotha to suffer and to die on our behalf, the writer of Hebrews is calling Christ's followers to leave your life of sin, forsake the ways of the world, abandon the desires of your flesh, leave your past behind and follow Christ. Go out and suffer with him. Identify with him. Don't go back to your old ways of life. Don't go back to the ways of sin and self Go after the Savior and be willing to not only identify with him, but to suffer with him. Question, have you left your sins in your past? Have you abandoned the ways that you used to walk in? Maybe sin has crept back into your heart and life. Have you allowed the things of this world not only to inhibit your growth in the gospel, but do you find yourself being allured back into the ways of the world? The call here as a follower of Christ is one in which you abandon those things and you follow Jesus. We must go to him and bear his disgrace. Why? Our citizenship is in heaven. It's not here. And so you and I, we can gladly and willingly and joyfully endure suffering because we go with Christ who suffered on our behalf. You see, one of the reasons why we choose to go and suffer with Christ, 
is because of the suffering that he endured to ransom us, to purchase us, which leads to number three, the pain Jesus endured on the cross. Verse 23 says, They tried to give him wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. After a day of sleepless night of slander and lies and indictments and betrayal and denials and floggings and beatings and scourgings and mockings and carrying a 200-pound cross, the Roman shoulders showed Jesus some compassion. This wine myrrh concoction was a narcotic designed to alleviate physical suffering. It was designed to numb the pain. But Jesus did not take it. He did not want any medication or any remedy to minimize the pain he was about to endure. Jesus wanted to be clear-headed about what he was going to experience at the cross. Instead of giving, being given a way to alleviate the, the suffering and the pain, to dull it just a little bit, he denies it. He wants to absorb all of the pain and all of the suffering to atone for your sin. He wanted to make sure that as the justice of God fell upon him at the cross, he would be fully aware of all that would be happening. As the wrath of God fell upon him for your sin, he made sure that he was not numb to your pain and to your suffering into what we have to endure as we follow him. So in light of what Jesus has done for us, we know what we are to go and do. It's your impact points. This right here. Deny yourself. Pick up your cross and follow Jesus. Just as Simon of Cyrene picked up the cross of Christ and followed Jesus up Calvary's hill, we go and we do likewise. We lay down our sin we turn from our sin. We turn from our pride and our selfishness. We turn away from our fleshly desires. We identify with Christ, his suffering and his death. We claim it as ours. And as we go through these things, as we suffer with Christ and as we suffer for Christ, we can do so with joy and with confidence. Why? Because the tomb is empty. Because Jesus defeated suffering and sin and death and hell and the grave, you can go through suffering in this life with joy, all because of what Christ has done for you through his death and through his resurrection. 